title of this message is To Worship in Wind and Truth. And I'd like to begin by thanking those who wrote such loving and encouraging words to me this last week. It was my birthday on Wednesday, and uh, Dan Young purchased this beautiful little zippered book and had some paper in there, and people wrote some really nice things. And I was, I, I was really blessed by it. It revived my breath. In Yiddish, we call it a machaya, a, a resurrection. I, however, have no idea how to celebrate my birthday. I decided to catch cold for my birthday. But looking for the bright side of it, uh, I slept the entire day and night, which I really needed. So, you know, even in the midst of what we would call tribulation, God is ministry. Now, over the last couple of weeks, I have given an overview of things I've discussed previously in detail. And often it, it is necessary to be reminded of the things that we've learned over the years to understand something new. Knowledge is based, it's built on foundations, and it is a tower, if you will, each level built on the, the previous one. There are also many new people who have to understand some of these foundations if this message is going to make some sense. And so I will give some background again today. The language of scripture is Hebrew. Not Hebrew and Greek, it's Hebrew. My friend in Jerusalem, a blessed friend of over 40 years now, uh, he's got this little maxim. Israel is to God what the telescope is to the, to the heavens. It brings, brings things in close so that you can understand more of what's going on. The New Covenant Greek is actually a translation of the Hebrew words that Yeshua spoke to his disciples. Certainly Yeshua was not speaking Greek to the Jews who followed him. <clears throat> Those Greek words have been translated into various other languages, and with each translation, some of the meanings and nuances of the Hebrew words are, are lost. That is a function of translations. Unfortunately, believers are not all Hebrew and Greek scholars, and so we end up exegeting the translations rather than the original language the Hebrew. And this can get quite confusing, especially when we're trying to formulate theology, words about God, understanding how God operates, who God is, how we perceive him. In John chapter 3, verse 8, we read, and the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it is going. So is everybody who is born of the Spirit. 
in John 4, verse 24, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, there's a, an extra word put in there in English to make it understandable, if you will, but actually obscures the meaning. The wind blows where it will, and you hear the sound of it, you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, so is everybody who is born of the wind. It's the same word, pneuma, in Greek. In John chapter 4, verse 24, God is pneuma. He's a wind, not a spirit. One commentator declares, sometimes the word spirit means wind. Actually, every time the word spirit means wind. There is no word spirit in Greek, nor is there any in Hebrew. The word pneuma is used for both wind and spirit. Wind and breath. And it is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word ruach, which also means either wind or breath, and is sometimes translated as soul. Even in English, the word spirit relates to the wind. He was spirited away. He left like the wind, and he was gone. Mostly the word spirit in English is interpreted spiritually, a word which comes from the word spirit. And it's used to describe God's wind, God's breath. But God doesn't have a wind. He doesn't have a breath. He is a wind. It's not something that he possesses. That's what he is. God is a wind. And this is declared to give us an understanding that God is incorporeal. He doesn't have a form. He doesn't have boundaries around him. We can't gaze upon him, if you will. That's why we're told, don't make any images of God, because what are you going to make an image of? How do you make an image of wind? It's impossible. God already created something that was in his image and likeness, and that's humanity, man. This concept is revealed throughout the, the Tanakh. What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? And that's what I want to talk about today. The image and likeness of God in man was breathed into this earthen vessel. We got into this in a little more depth last week. It is not the earthen vessel that is the divine image. It is the breath or wind of God that was breathed into that container that is the image of God that man carries with him. Unfortunately, uh, man disregarded the second commandment and has made a number of images of God. Most of them look like Eliezer Urbach, the guy who founded this congregation. 
an old guy with a long beard, long white beard. His picture is up there. In case you're interested, that is not a picture of God. It's a picture of Eliezer. Eliezer was a great man, but he falls short of being God. It's a, it's a silly notion. It's, it's for children. And an old man sitting on a throne with a long white beard. And it, this is imagery of a child's book. The word designated for the divine breath that was breathed into man is the word neshama. It is the divine breath that was breathed into to the earthen vessel, and then it quickened or made alive that earthen vessel, which then began to uh, be possessed of a nephesh, a an earthly breath, and it was alive. It, the divine breath animated this earthen vessel. This would not, what I'm talking about now has no regard for animal life. Animal life is possessed simply by a nephesh, the life of the flesh. The, the word nephesh means breath. It means life of the flesh in, in Leviticus 17.11. Uh, the life of the flesh is in the blood. It's, it, literally, it says the nephesh is in the blood. The life of this earthen vessel. And that's why animals could be substituted as sacrifice for human beings. I have a nephesh, an animal soul, if you will, a body, and so does the animal. And so the consequences for sin that would be perpetrated upon this body can be vicariously placed upon an animal and sacrificed in my place. Of course, there's no earthly sacrifice for my neshoma, the breath of God. That, that is something entirely different in Hebrew. Now, when Yeshua is speaking to the woman at the well, in context, he's talking about the coming destruction of the temple. The temple was the only place that God's people could bring korban, a word that is translated as sacrifice, seeking forgiveness prior to their lifting up their voices in praise and worship of the living God. And although korban is translated as sacrifice, that's, that's more an extrapolation than it is a definition. It literally means to draw close. And in order to draw close, you first had to offer up something for forgiveness, a sacrifice for forgiveness before you could draw close to God. And the word korban actually literally means draw close, not, not sacrifice. And the temple was the only place this drawing near to God could take place, the temple in Jerusalem. Now in the New Covenant, Yeshua has fulfilled the need for sacrifice. He didn't do away with sacrifice. He fulfilled the need for sacrifice. We're still under a sacrificial system. We're under his sacrifice. We're covered by his blood. But I no longer have to offer up sacrifice. I need only acknowledge his sacrifice made for me, and that will suffice 
who could forgive this, and without this need for me to make further sacrifice, which could only be done at the temple in Jerusalem, I can draw near to God at any time, any place. I can bring, I can perform korban, drawing near to God in Denver or in Jerusalem. To worship God in wind or breath and in truth is to approach him speaking words that acknowledge him as my God and King. He declares himself to be my husband and my maker in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5. I draw near to God through the words that I speak. I thank him for the life that he has bestowed upon me. I thank him for the sustenance that he has provided to sustain that life he has bestowed upon me. And I praise him for his mercy and the grace that he has shown me. For the things that I have done that deserve death, and instead he has taken upon himself those sins. He died that I might live. And I express my appreciation to that. That is drawing nigh unto God. This is not as complicated as some have made it. When I speak, I create a wind. You don't believe that? Put, start talking and put your hand up to your mouth. You'll feel the wind. My words are carried to you on the wind that is generated when I speak. The words of our mouth declare the intents of our heart, and if possessed of leptahor, a clean heart, the Lord will hear those words, and he will rejoice when we speak to him. There'll be a sweet smell in his nostrils. When we praise him and lift up words in spirit, on wind, and in truth, those words emanate from our neshama, the divine presence within us. The speech of the neshama differs dramatically from the speech of the nefesh, the life of the flesh. Paul deals with this in chapter 7 and 8 of Romans rather extensively. Uh, he even designates that there are believers who are carnal, which means earthy. And their speech emanates simply from the concerns of the flesh. They don't have a, a real grip on or a, a real consciousness of what is beyond physicality, spiritual, if you will, universe, more ethereal, more delicate, a realm of wind. They don't really grasp that, and so they speak of mundane matters all the time. The spiritual man, or the man of wind, speaks of other things that emanate from his neshama. Speaks of God and his wonders, his love, his mercy.
The command in Psalm 150, verse 6, is for mankind. It is not, it can be easily misunderstood in English. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. My dog has breath. But that's not, my dog is not the one God is speaking to there. The word for breath there is let all who have a neshoma, breath, praise the Lord. All those who are human, who have had that divine breath breathed into them, speak, praise the Lord. The first appearance of God is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where the Ruach Elohim, the wind of God, is seen, the Hebrew word is metachephet, hovering over the face of the deep. Metachephet is a peculiar word that it applies to a bird brooding over its young in a nest. And that's the imagery that, that God is trying to expose us to. When a bird broods over the life that came out of it, that life is surrounded by mama. She keeps it warm, she protects it. This is what God is trying to communicate to us, that the wind of God is encompassing this creation that existed, if you remember from last week, in confusion, void, and darkness. And he's going to hatch something out of this, what science calls this primordial soup. <clears throat> My people understand Ruach Elohim, the wind of God, as the vehicle which carries his words to the ears of man and also to the rest of creation. God does not only speak to man. God speaks to all in creation animate and inanimate. The words that he speaks that are carried on this wind reveal the light of God, which is the life of man in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 4. The first words God spoke into the creation was, Yehi or, let there be light, or let there exist light. And as soon as he said that word, and there was light. Once again, Hebrew is kind of peculiar. There is the word davar. The word davar means word. The word davar also means to speak. The word davar also means thing. Uh, Many people translate Deuteronomy, Devarim, as things. So God spoke, Devar, a word, Devar, and it became that thing, Devar. That's the imagery in Hebrew. Now this was not the mundane light of the sun and the stars that were created on the fourth day, natural light 
is different from the light that was created on the first day. It doesn't seem to have a specific source. It doesn't start here and emanate out. It's a light that shines round about and emanates in. It illuminates everything that is within this bubble or this pool, luminescent pool. It's no shadows. If you remember when the angel appeared to the women at the tomb, the light of his presence shone round about. It, it was everywhere. There, there was no place. That's why the book of Hebrews speaks about we are laid naked or bare before the one with whom we have to do. There's, there's no place for a shadow. If there's a source of light, one side of an object will be illuminated. The other side will be in shadows and darkness. If the light surrounds it, there's no place for shadows. Everything is open to sight and to understanding. In fact, this is the light that will illuminate eternity in Revelation 21 and 22. In, in uh, chapter 21, verse 23, we have, we'll no longer need the light of the sun and the stars and the moon to illuminate, for the presence of God will illuminate the city. We don't, we don't need the sun anymore. The light of God is what illuminates whatever, how do you describe eternity? I have no words. But whatever that condition is, it's the light of God that illuminates the place we will reside for in eternity. This is after the millennial kingdom of uh, Revelation 21, I mean of Revelation 19 and 20. In the beginning, there was darkness, and then God said, let there be light. The darkness was immersed in this pool of divine light. You couldn't see any more darkness. Now everything was illuminated. And then God, for whatever reason, I have no idea why he chose to do things this way, but he makes a machitza, a barrier, and he divides and he separates the light from the darkness. And he calls the light day, boker, and he calls the darkness evening or night. And then he brings them back together. Yom Echad, one day. That's what took place on the first day. He does that with some other things in the creation as well. He creates man a certain way, male and female. He then separates them out. Then he brings them back together, and he declares them to be basarachat, one flesh. Why does he do it that way? You got his number, call him. I, I have no idea. Text me when you, if you get an answer. Now, a great deal of time and words are devoted by my people trying to understand what happened here. We're not given many specifics, but these little tasty morsels excite the appetite. You want to know more. And after much discussion and thousands of opinions, 
they determine that the wind or the spirit of God that was hovering over the face of the deep, they determined that to be the wind of Messiah, the spirit of Mashiach. That it was actually Messiah that hovered over the face of the deep. And upon him, upon his wind were carried the divine words. Those words carried on the wind created when God spoke. And so from this, we determined that really ethereal, esoteric concept of Memra Hashem, the word of the Lord. And that differs from the spoken word, Devar. Memra Hashem was seen as the the wind of God, if you will, or the wind of Mashiach. It was determined that this word of God, that whatever it spoke, came into being. And the word of the Lord was the first manifestation of God in this creation. And in point of fact, the Gospel of John affirms that ancient and wondrous understanding of my people. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The New Covenant affirms this ancient and wondrous Jewish understanding. Those who hold to a lesser view of Mashiach, there are many who question if Yeshua was divine, if he was less than God, if he was more than God, if he was equal. The, the, the discussions go on forever. John chapter 1, verse 1 silences all those voices. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God has always revealed himself to man as a Word, except when that Word became flesh, and we'll see this in just a moment. Paul also understood this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. He understands this dualistic manifestation of God. He says, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him, and one Lord, kurios, a word in Greek that relates to the Hebrew word Adonai, a very peculiar form of the word Lord. And for us there is one Lord, Yeshua HaMashiach, by whom are all things and we exist through him. They make this, they try to understand a division between God's name and his title, Elohim. There's one God, the Father, and one Lord, Yeshua. And I don't know if I read this because I'm not really conscious at the moment, but for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Yeshua HaMashiach, by whom are all things, and we exist 
through him. Everything that was created was created through Mashiach. He's the one who spoke. The author of Hebrews tells us that Yeshua is the perfect representation of God to man. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And again, in English, we, use a lot, we utilize a lot of words to try to get a concept of what is being written in the Greek. In the Greek, it says Yeshua is the hypostasis, the essential nature of God revealed to man. In science, we still have, we still retain this word hypostasis. If you wish to speak about the essential quality of something, something, a quality that makes that thing what it is. That's the hypostatic quality. The hypostatic quality of water is what makes it a liquid. It's what, it's what identifies it as, as water. And you sure was the hypostatic quality of God, if you will, it he was the most of God that we could receive without being consumed. We saw him as the, the physical manifestation of God's wisdom to man. We looked at Proverbs chapter 8, verses 29 and 30 which says, when he set boundaries for the sea so that the waters would not surpass his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was a master workman beside him, and his in his delight day by day. My people see this as speaking of Yeshua, a physical manifestation of God's wisdom coming to man to reason with him in the same way that God would come in Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 18, come let us sit and reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. You don't understand. You're arguing with me on everything. Let's reason here. Isn't that the fullness of Yeshua's ministry? Coming to reason with those who had either denied certain aspects of, 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 of God of the Mashiach, who added to, he sits and reasons continually for three solid years. Let's see if we can bring heaven down to earth here. Today it's fashionable to see those who do not believe, for those who don't believe in God, to see mankind as panacea for all of the woes of the world, a blight or a cancer upon the face of the earth. Our flatulence and the flatulence of our machines and the flatulence of the herds of animals that are kept to, to feed us will certainly and eventually end all life on earth. We're told, we're fed this daily if it's too hot, it's global warming. It's too cold, global warming. It's snowing right now, global warming. It doesn't it doesn't matter. It this is this is what we're told. The only hope for the survival of the planet is to decrease the population of man. 
Now, this has been going on. This is not a new thing. Back in the back in the 1800s, there was this Russian woman who was a mystic, and she actually is the, called the mother of the New Age movement. And she was speaking about this back then when the population was billions less. This view of man stands in contradistinction to the view of scripture. Psalm 8 tells us that man was created a little lower than God. It does not say angels. The Septuagint translates it as angel, but the Hebrew says man was made a little lower than Elohim, God. And Miguel Angelo was the first one to actually take this concept and run with it. Prior to Miguel Angelo, all the paintings uh, that existed in the church of God, God existed at this, as this yellowish, whitish um, blossom of light with rays coming out of it and the Hebrew word yud heh vav heh in the center. And it was over everything else and distinguished from everything else and separated. And Miguel approached the Pope and said, Psalm 8, I want to do a painting. And I'm sure we're all fam familiar with it, the, the, the two fingers, one of God and one of man, and, and man's fingers just a touch, a little lower than God's, and they're almost touching. And it's such a, he captured the essence of, of Psalm 8 in that painting. In man is a divine spark. There is a presence of God in man that exposes the creation to the, pre to the presence of the creator. This is a very high view of man, not a low view. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27, the, the candle or the light of God is the neshama, that divine breath that was breathed into me. That is the light of God. And I can expose the creation to that light with my words. It's one of the reasons I like to describe my soul or my neshama as a, a luminescent vapor. It is a breath that creates a, a wisp of light, of divine light, and that's what lives inside of me. When this body is old and decrepit and dies, you know, by this afternoon, The neshama is not affected. That life will live on. The nefesh will die. I will no longer breathe in oxygen. But my neshama is unaffected by the life or the death of this body. It is totally independent. And it, the body will return to the earth from which it was taken. And my neshama will return to God who first breathed it into me.
from where it was first taken. That's why Paul proclaims to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Everything in creation began with wind. The breath of wind is the very first cause. Ruach Elohim, the wind of God, brooding over the face of the deep. God revealing himself to Adam was also as words carried on a wind. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we'll get into this much more deeply as Shavuot. We talk about the experience at Sinai. But Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it doesn't talk about God, God's voice walking in the garden in the cool of the evening. Literally, that translation is, and they heard the voice of God walking in the garden on the wind of the day. The words of God were carried on the wind when God spoke. And when God speaks, since he is holy, the wind he generates is holy, and the words he generates are holy. He appeared in the same fashion at Sinai to Moshe, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12, and the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard, You heard the voice of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. A voice walking on the wind. Those of my people who believe that it was the Mashiach who hovered over the face of the deep also believe it was Mashiach who spoke in the garden, whose words were heard on the on on walking on the wind of the day, calling out, Ayeka, where are you? They also believe that it was Mashiach who spoke from the midst of the fire on Mount Sinai. I would include myself in that group. For me, every manifestation of God to man has been Mashiach. And in the fullness of time, that word became flesh. It took on flesh, and we were able to see hear and touch the living God. That's why I love that song, Mary, have you, have you heard? Even thinking about it, I begin to mess up. I can't, I can't bear that song. When you kissed your baby boy, you kissed the face of God. Immediately, once again, we translate things so poorly and we never get these connections. Psalm 2, Nashkubar, kiss the son, lest he be angry. Mary was the first one. Actually, Nashkubar, kiss the son. The scriptures are not isolated. They're not segments that exist in a vacuum, everything in the Word of God is connected. And it is connected by the very same wind that spoke those words in the first place.
Paul shares these thoughts. The Holy Spirit is spoken of as being the Spirit of Yeshua by Paul in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, in Galatians 4 through 6, and Acts chapter 16, verse 7. Yeshua draws on this in John 14, verse 6, when he says, I will send you another comforter. For Jewish people, this has great meaning. One of the names for Mashiach in Judaism is Menachem, the comforter. When Messiah came in the flesh, he was confi confined by space and time. He could only be one place at one time. And he declares that it's expedient for me to die, that he might send another comforter, the holy wind. Without a, a, a comforter that is not in, he's incorporeal. He's in a state of wind. And he can be with us whenever and wherever we are. He doesn't, we don't have to travel to him. He's there. Then our breath can join with his in a state of communion and oneness. And we are able to hear his words of comfort. And he can hear our words, our speech, our wind of praise rising up, joining with his. You know, this imagery is given in the temple too. This message was shorter when I wrote it, but last night I added a few things. And I'm going to add them today, too. I mean, where are you going to go? No, no. In the temple, the, the altar of incense, there was smoke that came up, column of smoke. And we would take a coal from the altar of sacrifice, excuse me, the altar of sacrifice, there was smoke coming up. And we would take a coal from the altar of sacrifice and put it, put it in the golden censer, which is euphemistically referred to as the altar of incense. It wasn't an altar, it was just a bowl, a golden censer. And then we would sprinkle a special concoction of herbs and spices on it. And that hot coal would begin to make the smell come forth. It would release the odors from these herbs and spices. And they would rise up and they would mingle with the smoke from the altar of sacrifice in this steady column of smoke that would rise and go through a portal in the top of the arch of the temple. And the God says, I desire there be an unbroken column of smoke between the altar of sacrifice and the altar of incense, which carried the prayers of the nation of Israel up to God. Revelation talks about it in chapter 5. When we are worshiping God in spirit and truth, our breath and his mingle together. They rise up. They're one. That is the whole point of communion to share a union with the one who created us. It's not always as easy as it sounds. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 9, 
relates to what Yeshua stresses. He knows what's coming. He knows the times of trouble that are coming and that times of trouble can take the wind or the, or the breath of God and suppress it in man. Exodus chapter 6, verse 9. Moshe relayed the message of God to Israel, but because of their broken spirit and cruel bondage, they did not hear him. This was during the time of the, just before the Exodus, they're in slavery, and the cruel and punishment, they couldn't hear the word of God. Because of that bondage. The word broken spirit is actually kotzeruach, and it literally means they were short of breath. They were panting. They couldn't, they couldn't be inspired. They couldn't breathe in the breath of God because of that bondage. It was like, you know, something sitting on their chest, and they couldn't, they couldn't inspire the Spirit of God. The mystics of my people have an interesting take on the word Pesach. Obviously, this is the time of the Passover. The word Pesach simply means, literally means to skip. By extrapolation, to, to pass over those houses that had the blood of the lamb on the lintels and both side posts. That's the Peshat, the simple meaning. But the Sod, the mystical meaning, expands this word dramatically. They split the word Pesach in half. Pe in Hebrew is the word for mouth. Stach is the word for conversation. And in Exodus 6, we see no conversation with God was possible. We had no words from our mouth to make a conversation with God because of this shortness of breath, this tribulation, this labor, hard labor that we were under, it inhibited our conversation. And in shortening our breath, we could not, couldn't hear God. And we couldn't respond with praises to God because suffering is too great. What came out of our mouth was only paro, which in Hebrew means pharaoh. And they split the word pharaoh also, pe, mouth, and ro from ra, which means bad, the bad mouth. What came out was cursings, complainings, hissings, as it's called in Hebrew. It makes the same sound as a snake. Tribulation is going to bring a choice to all who are called by the name of God. Our speech, our mouths, is one of the most conspicuous aspects of the image of God in which we were created. James tells us that the tongue is fickle, speaking both blessings and cursings. Few are able to bridle it. Sometimes when believers suffer, we get mad at God. When I was younger, I did 
I was very angry at God when my first wife died. God was long-suffering and patient, listening to the rantings of a petulant child until he heard the words, sorry. At times we even curse God when we believe he sent the plague. That's one of the most extraordinary verses in Revelation. And they curse God who sent the plagues. So they know there's a God. They know he's the one who sent it. But instead of repenting, they curse God. The wise man keeps his speech pure by watching his heart. There's a comic who made this comment. I don't have to watch what I say. I only have to watch what I think. I like that. Wise man takes his cue from Paul, who also understood this mysticism. Paul was a mystic. He uses the word mystery more times than any other disciple. He writes in Philippians chapter 4, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is venerable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent, if there's any praise, think on these things. He puts it another way to the Ephesians in chapter 5. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord. That is worshiping God in spirit and in truth. The wind that emanates from our mouth that has a pure, clean word to it, a word of praise, you can, in a very real sense, carve out a place for God to occupy, even in the midst of extreme suffering. And then we can experience a peace that surpasses all understanding, a peace that transcends the circumstances that we find ourselves in in this life. For the peace of God is greater than the conditions of his creation. Father, in Yeshua's name, thank you. I thank you for the part of yourself that you have imbibed into man. That there is a breath of life and that life is the light of your presence. That we can call upon you wherever we are for you are with us ere we go. You never leave us nor forsake us for you you inspire us moment by moment. Every breath is a reborn experience. Strengthen us in these days of darkness, Lord God, and let our light shine. That all might behold you and give glory to you. In Yeshua's name, amen.